Welcome to Let's Get Political, a podcast dedicated to providing you with all the information you need to know to make informed decisions without the media spin. I'm your host, Benjamin Copeland, with my co-host, Jessica Hargis. In this episode, our very first one, we are going to look at the U.S. Supreme Court, which starts a new term on the first Monday in October. And we're thrilled to have on the show Dr. Stephanie Newbold, an associate professor at Rutgers School of Public Affairs and Administration. She was also a Supreme Court fellow in the 2012-2013 term and an expert in the U.S. Supreme Court. She's going to help us examine four extremely interesting cases that the court is going to hear this term, including cases which could change abortion law, gun laws, immigration law, and freedom of speech. We hope you enjoy. Did you know that I did a histographical dissertation on the Supreme Court, taking it from 1803 to 2007? Really? I did. I studied how the Supreme Court decisions influence public managers in, to ensure that the federal government doesn't violate the Constitution. Public managers need to be more knowledgeable about the Constitution. Wow. That's I had a really great dissertation teacher or chair for that. My dissertation was super fun because I studied like social and political impacts on the Supreme Court and how over time you can kind of see evolution in, you know, there's always that question, is the Supreme Court listening to what's going on in the world or are they in a bubble because we can't hear what they're doing? And it was very fascinating to me that you see, you do see a shift, not always immediate, but you do see a shift to where they want to help get to where the public is. Yeah. Of course, it's not always been that way. You know, it's not everyone always thinks the Supreme Court works for the little people. And then I always remind them of the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse during the Great Depression. Yeah. My favorite chapter was a whole chapter over FDR and the four men of the, uh, the four yep. horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. And all their fighting and, and infighting and all of the packing plan. Packing plan, which I'm is- so excited. Okay. I will tell you, this is not, I mean, not to get political. I am so excited that the Democrats start talking about court packing again. I'm like, oh my gosh, I heard about that. I would love to see you have another battle over that so I can update my dissertation and say, wow, look, history really does repeat itself. So yeah. I can totally irritate my historian yeah. friends. <laughs> but, but it didn't work for FDR and it probably won't work for Biden either. <laughs> okay, I always tell, I always tell my friends, I'm like, you know, history repeats itself because we don't learn. And then I have a, a colleague who's like, yeah, history does not repeat itself. All the circumstances are different. I'm like, okay, let's not get technical. Let's get, you know, kind of overview. They didn't learn that packing the court is not popular and they're going to try it again. I just, I'm super fascinated if they're going to do it. I'm just saying. Anyway. So, so they're going to they're gonna start the new term though in October. I am, I will tell you that I am obsessed with the court. My husband can't stand it. I love reading court decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, this semester I've taught seven Texas government classes and no American government. And next semester when the court comes back in session, I will be teaching six American government classes. (laughs) So (laughs) they will be very court heavy. So I'm very, very excited. Yes. Well, I was forced to read lots of Supreme Court opinions and you know my least favorite ones were Uh written by justice sandra day o'connor they were rambling 
Like she, family, she has a great thought process. Oh my goodness. It was, they were so rambling. And I, I would just, when I would look to see who wrote it and I'd see Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love her. I think she's great. But like when I would read that she, that she wrote it, I just go, oh no, <laughs> this is going to take favorite. forever. <laughs> I my favorite. So Sandra O'Connor, uh, she penned the KC. Uh, yep. She did. Yeah. You know, I'm, su- I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen this next session because there are a few cases that uh, could challenge that. Not only the Harvey bill that everyone's talking about, but mm-hmm. you know, the Mississippi bill that the court has actually already put on the docket. So nerds like me are super excited for October 1st to come around. Well, who do we know that we can talk to about this new Supreme Court term that can give us an overview of uh, some of the most important cases that are going to come down? Me, of course. I am an expert. Besides um, you, Jessica. And I will bring my friend, my chair, Stephanie Newbold, is amazing. She did a great, I, I loved her class. Her class was so focused on the law. It wasn't ideological. You could never really tell what she was. That was my favorite part of it. She would just make you read the text and try and determine the law without thinking about the politics. Well, that's great. Well, you know what? I think we should talk to her. I think it's time to get political. Let's get political. All right, Jessica, we have a great guest today, an expert in the U.S. Supreme Court. Who is she? Stephanie Newball, PhD. She was my dissertation chair at the University of Texas at Dallas. I will tell you that um, the thing I remember most about, well, I have like a, like a thousand things I remember most about you, but the thing I remember most was always the pearls. She's always there. <laughs> I didn't wear any. Ben probably could never remember that. It could not even believe this, but you were like my favorite professor because you were super professional, always on point. And that is total opposite of me. <laughs> so I just loved your class. You were just, and you were just so critical thinking. People would answer and it would be so baseline. And you're like, I'm so sorry. Can we get a little deeper? This is a PhD. And I'm like, Thank you. I have been waiting for the deeper class. So loved, loved, loved your class. And um, you're actually one of the main reasons I became a professor because I was like, I want to be new bold when I grow up. And then I grew up and I realized I could never be new bold. So I'm just going to be like new bold adjacent. That's what I do. Um, but uh, then I was, of course, super jealous. Then uh, new bold became a uh, fellow at the Supreme Court uh, during the 2012 session, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And so met all of my idols and was able to hobnob with some uh, some of these people that we'll be talking about today. Um, she never really divulged any cool secrets, though. So maybe today she'll say something like saw that guy at lunch one time. I don't know. He sits with somebody else. Anyway, and now you're currently working, of course, as the Associate Professor of Public Affairs and Administration at Rutgers University in Newark. And so very, very proud to know you. And I'm so happy for you to join us today. Before we jump in, though, to like legal stuff, I just wanted to ask you a question because I know my reasons. So here's my question. When did you decide that teaching was the career path for you? Uh, I was a first year MPA student at Virginia Tech, and I had a policy class with Charles Goodsell, who was one of the giants in the field. And one of the interesting things about Professor Goodsell was he's the first professor in public administration, first scholar to come out and say bureaucracy is good. 
and he built a career about um, the good of public service and being public service per careers being a noble profession. But then he was also really interested in architecture and he went to all 50 state capitals and he was a, a really great photographer and he took photos of all of the state capitals and he um, wrote several books about how you can look at the architecture of state buildings and determine how democratic they are. And it was it was just really interesting. He did like some comparisons to Nazi Germany and to you know other non-democratic regimes and how the structure of architectural space really helps to define um, the structure of a government and the values of a government. Um, but back to the teaching question, I had this policy class with him and it was, you know, you think about an introductory class to public policy, perhaps not the most interesting subject matter. And he took the most mundane topics and the most generic, you know, basic assumptions that every student of policy has to know. And he made it the most interesting subject matter I had ever heard in my life. And I was like, that's what I want to be. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus of me thinking, you know, I didn't necessarily want to go and be a practitioner oriented, have a practitioner oriented career the way I was thinking about when I started my MPA degree um, and moving toward a doctoral degree um, and thinking more about research questions and the big types of issues that he would present um, in terms of connecting his own research to practice. And so that was, that was really inspiring for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm really happy. I always enjoy talking about the Supreme Court and talking about the connections between um, what we do on the legal entity of democratic governance and how that affects sort of the management of government and how we operate and, and, and really sort of connecting um, those ideas theoretically and practically. Something that I think that a lot of people in the general public don't understand is the selection of the cases is done by the justices themselves. And a lot of people are talking about the direction the court is going based on the decisions that were made in the 2020 session. But the cases from the 2020 session were not selected by the current court. The makeup was different when the cases were selected. And so we had a lot more, in my opinion, um, consensus on the court than we might see in the next session. Do you agree with that? Or am I overreaching there, you know, with the addition of ACD? Um, so each year the court receives between about eight to 10,000 um, petitions for reviewing of, of cases. So um, usually those are writs of certiorari, meaning that those are cases that have been um, decided by lower courts and they are brought to the court on appeal. Um, the vast majority of cases that the Supreme Court chooses to hear are cases um, where there's divisions among the circuits, um, the circuit courts of appeal. And so they're looking to create sort of uniformity of understanding of the application of the rule of law. Is it true that the justice with the least seniority has to open the door when they're in conference? That is Somebody true. knocks on the door. Uh, and number two, what's, what's, probably the most, what's some of the most important reasons why the court will grant cert for a case? So there are several, there are several reasons. One would be conflict amongst the circuit. So the Ninth Circuit dealing with a case on guns has a very different opinion, say, than the Fifth Circuit. And the court wants to set a uniform understanding about that particular rule, policy, law, statute um, that's in question. 
Two would be issues of major national significance that the court feels it's important for it to have a voice. So, for example, really popular case like Bush v. Gore, okay, the presidential election of 2000, um, the Supreme Court feels that it has a really important responsibility to handle that issue. Um, issues of national security, conflicts between the states. And so several years, well, probably about 10 years ago, now there was a great debate between New York and New Jersey as to who owned Ellis Island um, because Ellis Island sits in waters that are both in New York and in New Jersey. And it wasn't a question necessarily of who owns Ellis Island as it was for the tax revenue when people go to Ellis Island <laughs> um, and, and who receives the money from, from those purchases. And so issues of, of, of those and also questions, although this is um, much less likely, um, conflicts between between the state and another country, um, the Supreme Court would be the court that would review um, those, those particular um, issues of, of legal concern or constitutional significance. But primarily, um, it, are, it is conflicts amongst the circuits that the court really wants to um, address. And those are by far um, the most important or the most um, significant number of cases um, per, per each term. Something that's so interesting about the court and comparing it to the legislative and executive branches is the model of civility that the justices establish and maintain towards each other. So for example, um, when they are discussing a case in conference, they have a rule where the justice with the most seniority can be the chief justice if he chooses to go first, but if not, it would now be Justice Thomas. He speaks and he cannot speak again until um, they go around the table and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who is now um, the junior ranking justice speaks. There's this sense of, of, of civility and camaraderie and respect for other people's opinions. Um, before they go onto the bench, each justice shakes each other's um, hand. Um, after oral arguments, they all have lunch together upstairs in the justice's dining room at the court. And so it becomes much harder to dislike one of your colleagues when you're constantly engaging your colleagues in such a personal way. And, and I think that really should be a model and should set as an example um, for how elected officials um, should engage one another. And you know, once, once you develop personal relationships with someone, no matter how much you may disagree with that person, um, it becomes much more hard, it becomes much more challenging to defame um, that person publicly, which is, you know, helps to explain why someone like an Antonin Scalia and a Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have been such extraordinary close personal friends throughout the course of, of, of their professional, so much of their professional lives. Well, that brings us to the first case we wanted to talk about. Um, I thought this one was fascinating because we had just dealt with an issue that would seem very similar, but I think the nuances are important to discuss here. So that would be the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Obviously, it's an abortion case. It has to do with um, some nuances from a Mississippi law. But in 2018, the court addressed 
some similar things that were in the Mississippi law. So, so the facts of the case are that um, Mississippi passed a law that was called the Gestational Age Act, and it prohibited all abortions with few exceptions after 15 weeks gestational age. Now, it had other nuances to it, but the focus of the court is going to be this 15-week issue. So Jackson Women Health Organization, they were the only licensed abortion facility in Mississippi, because um, as abortion rights have been uh, narrowed down by the court and allowed for the states to do uh, more um, strict, be more strict with abortion in the states. We have one abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi, and um, the doctors filed a lawsuit in the federal district court challenging the law saying that, uh, requesting the emergency temporary restraining order, which was, of course, put in place. So the law did not go into effect. The finding was that the state had not provided, or I'm sorry, the um, say the district court granted the clinic's motion for summary judgment and enjoined Mississippi from enforcing the law, finding that the state had not provided evidence that a fetus would be viable at 15 weeks, and the Supreme Court precedent prohibits states from banning abortion prior to viability. So the constitutional question before the court was, is Mississippi's law, which bans nearly all abortions after 15 weeks gestational age, unconstitutional because of the viability? So this is an interesting case because, like I said, in um, Health Center in 2016, um, they didn't overrule Casey. They kept in the need for the viability. They, the arguments there was, of course, the distance of driving. This was a, a Texas law that required you to drive a certain distance. And if there was um, options for uh, doctors to um, admitting privileges and all these other different questions, but it didn't address the 15-week or the viability of the fetus. So why do you think the court chose this case? How do you think this is going to affect the future of abortions in the United States? So I think this is going to be an extraordinary case, and it's going to be a case that really sort of, you know, tests Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey in a way that um, other cases have not, in large part because you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg no longer at the court. Um, she has passed away. You have the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, who has a much different legal and constitutional view of Roe v. Wade and the application of the Fourth Amendment's Privacy Act to um, abortion decision making. Um, so I think this is this is going to be a really interesting case. I think the reason the court chose this case is because the composition of the court has changed dramatically and you have a lot of justices on the court now who are very um, adamant in their thinking um, and have been very public in their dissatisfaction with Ruby Wade for a number of decades. And so I think they, you know, were looking for an opportunity perhaps to undermine or undercut Roe and Casey um, in a way that they have not had an opportunity to do so in the past. Um, so I think some interesting questions, and it'll be fascinating in oral argument to hear the types of questions that the justices ask. Um, one is, you know, you, you, the court has to decide how active it wants to be. I mean, one of the things we've seen with John Roberts is he's been very um, conservative, little c conservative, and how active he wants the court to be on these types of issues. And um, his his dissent in the Texas case recently, I think was was quite extraordinary that this is not something that the Supreme Court, you know, um, wants to take a role in it at at this point um, in in the um, in this um, 
sort of debate over abortion. Um, I will say that I think, so just say hypothetically, the court rules in favor of Mississippi's um, gestational age act and says that all pre-viability prohibitions on elected abortions are unconstitutional. Let's say that the court does say in a five, four, six, three decision makes that case. I think what's going to be really interesting is what happens if states don't want to agree or comply with this. So, so the Supreme Court sets precedent, right? So if they say, that Mississippi's law is constitutional, that means that pretty much any state can make the decision to have this type of law on their books and it would be constitutional. That's right. Right? So what happens if states don't wanna comply with this? And what happens if the Justice Department doesn't want to enforce this? I mean, we saw this with um, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act and the Obama administration and Chief Justice Roberts was really, an oral argument was really um, defensive and, and quite upset at the, at, um, um, attorney at Obama's attorney general, um, Eric Holder, because they basically made the decision that DOMA was unconstitutional, the Defense of Marriage Act, and they weren't going to enforce it. Yeah. And so the question then becomes is that's a really dangerous precedent, okay? Because the job of the Justice Department is to enforce the law. And can a president actually say, I don't want to enforce the law? And what happens in issues of federalism and, and constitutional separation of powers if that occurs? I mean, this could be, this could have the potential to set a really dangerous precedent in terms of what the reactions of states, say like New York and California that have a very different viewpoint on abortion than say Mississippi and Louisiana and traditionally more red states, Texas included. Um, and so what, what happens at that point? And that could really turn a very divisive political issue into a constitutional crisis, okay? Is because when the Supreme Court speaks in our government, that's the final word, okay? And no matter how much we dislike or how much we like the opinion, the, the, there, is no, there is no question but to follow what the court tells us to do. But what happens if, if states don't wanna comply? Two yeah, questions. Can I ask two questions on that really quickly? Because I think this is really fascinating. Um, the first question is, is it fair to say that Chief Justice Roberts is an institutionalist? And what I mean by that is that he is looking out as the Chief Justice, he's looking out for the best interests of the Supreme Court. And I've always been taught and I've always understood that the Supreme Court really trades on its reputation much more so than the other branches. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how he may think of the case one way or the other, is he perhaps more likely to not trade the credibility of the Supreme Court if in fact what the hypothetical you were bringing up comes true and the Biden administration and the Justice Department decides, you know what, we don't really care what you said. So we're just not going to enforce it. I think he, I think he's absolutely an institutionalist. You know, when he came into this position after Bush nominated him and the Senate confirmed that nomination, he said he wanted to model his tenure after two chief justices. One, the um, the justice that he had clerked for, um, 
um, Chief Justice Rehnquist. And one of the things that he really admired about Rehnquist was his ability to effectively manage the third branch of government. And speaking to what we were talking about earlier and how extensive the Chief Justice's responsibilities are in terms of managing the lower federal courts, not just the Supreme Court, but all of the administrative responsibilities associated with that position, I think that's, that's very astute. Roberts recognized that this was that his job was just greater than you know um, being um, first among equals in terms of, of decision making of cases. The second justice he wanted to model his tenure after was John Marshall, sort of the great chief justice. One of the things that Marshall did that was really effective was he institutionalized the Supreme Court. He made he turned it into um, an institution that really competed with the presidency and the Congress um, in terms of, of how to um, effectuate constitutional interpretation and how to really guide the government um, in terms of, of its application of constitutional law. The other thing Marshall was really effective at is getting very strong um, either um, uh, unanimous opinions or very strong majority opinions. And Roberts thought that was really important in terms of how the court speaks. You know, that's becoming increasingly more difficult as, as issues become incredibly more divisive, not just in American politics, but also at court, um, even though the vast majority of cases, so almost 90% of the cases are unanimous or very strong majorities at the court. It's, it's these the really controversial cases um, dealing with a lot of social issues that we see the major divisions. Um, but I do think Roberts is an institutionalist and I think a chief justice has to be an institutionalist. I think it would be irresponsible for a chief justice not to look out for the institutional reputation and the institutional significance of how the Supreme Court and how the third branch of government in general um, is responsible to um, the American system of governance. And, and so I think it would be absolutely appropriate to call him that. So my follow-up to that mm -hmm. then is with that, having set that groundwork, is it possible that the chief justice could decide he's not going to, that the other five justices that have been appointed by Republicans are going to, um, are going to you know, rule for Mississippi and as the chief justice, he's allowed to decide he's going to write the case, write the opinion, I mean. And uh, would is it possible? I, I don't know. I'm asking you, your, your expert opinion. Is it possible that the chief justice decides he's going to write the case, he will be in that majority, but then he narrows that opinion so much that it gives the court leeway in order well, to kind of head off this constitutional crisis that could happen? That's an interesting question. So when, when the justices meet in conference and they discuss each case that has presented an oral argument, they go around the table and they vote and they tell you, you know, this, tell their colleagues, this is how I think this case is, should be ruled. And if the chief justice is in the majority, he can determine if he, he wants, if he himself wants to write the opinion or he can delegate it to someone else. The justice and the, the highest ranking member in the dissent will have the same authority. Now, one of the things you have to be really careful about is once you start writing opinions, those opinions circulate amongst your colleagues. And you have to be really careful that if you're, if you're writing for a 5-4, that you don't alienate so many of your colleagues that you would lose the majority. 
And so that's the challenge that a situation like that would bring. It could also be that he could very much find himself, and again, we don't know any of this because all of this is confidential, but he could find himself completely aligned with the minority. And you know how that would sort of, um, um, then it would be presumably Justice Thomas who would be making the decision as to, to who would write the case, theoretically speaking. Um, so I'm, so I, I think it would all depend on, again, how active does this court want to be in this case? Does it want to decide the issue very narrowly, which it could do, and really not touch Roe and not touch Casey precedent? Or if it decided it wanted to be more of on the lines of, um, you know, courts in, in the Earl Warren court, for example, and be more active and really sort of change constitutional dialogue um, about this particular issue. Um, I think it's going to be, I think this is probably going to be one of the most, if not the most fascinating and anticipated cases of the term, just because there is so much at stake, um, not just in terms of how the court interprets its past precedent, but what the reaction is going to be, okay? Um, because the nation is so incredibly divided over this issue. And well, there's so many trigger laws right there's now. There's so many so trigger, laws. trigger laws. And, you know, what, you know, we have not been in a, in a situation um, in this country's history where states have adamantly said, I am not following the decision of the court. Exactly. And would this be that first type of case where really, you know, wealthy, proactive states, again, like a New York, like a California, um, say absolutely not, not, not playing this game? What, what would those consequences look like? And, and what would that mean in the context of constitutional law and federalism? I think we're going to have to have Dr. Newbold back when the decision's made. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> well, I'm excited about it because, you know, you see Roberts assigning cases to people who will narrow them down. That's what, you know, he doesn't want to address it. He wants to be the institutionalist. So I'm with you. I think that if, I think if he is in the majority, he's right in the case decision himself. That's for sure. Because he wants it very, very narrow. But when you look at the back and forth of them even deciding to take the case, you see how long it took them to make the decision. So you can see how many times they went into conference with this case. You know that even they don't know what they want to do with it just yet. If they well, I think, I think it could actually be the opposite. I think they absolutely could know what they want. Really? I don't know. I just felt like, you know, there were so many, you know, redistributing. I think, I think a lot of, I think a justice who like a Clarence Thomas, a Samuel Lolito, who have been very, very outspoken on their criticism of Roe v. Wade. I think they have longed for a case like this. <laughs> uh, and the opportunity to potentially overturn Roe v. Wade is very exciting um, to a lot of, of, constitutional scholars and thinkers who have never agreed with how the court interpreted that decision to begin with. Yeah, it's going to, it's definitely going to be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. If I were to, if I were to put my prediction on it, which doesn't mean much, <laughs> if I were to put my prediction on it, I would say that, that Roberts will write the opinion and he'll, he'll, it'll be as narrow as he can possibly make it by staying in the majority, but who knows? Who absolutely knows? Let's move on to our next case, uh, Houston Community College versus Wilson. Uh, in this case, a Texas case, uh, a trustee from the Houston Community College was criticizing the Board of Trustees and the board then decided to censure uh, Trustee Wilson uh, and, and put some sanctions on him. He sued 
the the community college and uh, basically the issue uh, before us here on this one is whether or not an elected official can be censured by a legislative body and whether or not in some ways that um, whether that is something that is not good for that the people that that person represents um, and and if that's if that's something that that a legislative body can do. Um, let's just, let's get right into this one. Um, do, do you have any sense of why the court took this case? I, I, I would say so. I think this is a really interesting case in terms of local government management um, that we're gonna pay attention to. Um, so the Houston Community College System, it's a governmental agency, which is really important to keep in mind in terms of how the court may or may not rule here. Right, it operates all of the community colleges in the greater Houston area. They have nine trustees, each of whom are publicly elected for six um, year terms, and they have the statutory authority to govern through orders and resolutions and to adopt their own bylaws um, and rules for how they're going to govern themselves. Now, David Wilson, he was an elected member to this body. So he was part of the, um, this particular agency and he began to really disagree with his colleagues about issues of funding. Now, I think what's going to become really interesting is the, you know, the devil is always in the details is exactly how he chose to respond to his disagreement with his colleagues. So he began to publicly criticize them through automated phone calls to constituents around the Houston area. Um, he went on various websites to publicly criticize his colleagues. He went on local radio um, it was very critical of their decision making. But then the story takes an interesting turn because he begins to hire private investigators um, to, to surveil um, the Houston Community College system and then to also um, um, investigate a fellow trustee by going to her home and you know, surveying you know, her individual behavior at home. Um, so as a result of this, the board censures him and they also prohibited him from receiving any type of reimbursement charges for um, any expenses that he incurred as a member um, of, of this particular agency. Um, and so Wilson brings, interestingly, a 1983 suit um, in federal court claiming that one, his First Amendment rights to free speech have been violated. But also, it seems to me that because he brought a 1983 suit, that he is examining whether or not he has qualified immunity that as, an, as an, um, an elected official, he is, his speech is protected and he is immune because he is, he is talking about issues of public concern. Can you, and so, can you talk yeah. about section 1983 real quick? What, what are we so, talking about when we say section 1983? So 42 U.S. Code 1983 um, is a statutory law that basically um, requires um, um, civil servants um, um, at all levels of government, but, but particularly here we're looking at state and local, uh, to maintain constitutional confidence. And as long as you are acting in the best interest of your constituents, as long as you are um, working within the confines of um, the parameters of your job, um, and you are not violating anyone's constitutional or individual rights for which a reasonable person would have known, um, you have qualified immunity, meaning that you cannot be sued or potentially censored um, for the decisions um, that you make in the context of your job. 
So one of the, the interesting questions or the question the court has to address here is does the First Amendment restrict the authority of an elected body to issue some type of censure resolution in response to a member's speech? My guess is going to, the answer is going to be a no pretty affirmatively. Um, if Congress can censure its own members, why can't a local government board censure its own members? If you recall just recently, um, the House of Representatives censured um, Marjorie Taylor Greene for comments that she had made um, yes. dealing with um, Nazi Germany um, and so forth and comparing um, decisions about mask wearing um, to, to decisions that Hitler made with regard to um, um, oppressing the Jews. Um, so my guess is probably no. I think, and this is where the details are going to be interesting. So I think on the one hand, he may have a case where his speech is protected when he is speaking publicly about issues of concern of funding. So going out on websites, going on local talk radio, um, issuing concerns um, um, through automated phone calls and so forth. I think the challenge is the private investigator. Like, does that cross the line in terms of um, um, his right that when that those that decision infringed upon others rights and as a board member, he is also compelled to comply by the bylaws. Um, and so the the Houston Community College system has the statutory authority to create their own rules um, and they, they govern themselves by those rules. And, you know, oftentimes that's a majority based system. And that even though we may disagree with those rules, we're still compelled to abide by them. So I, I think it would be, I think it would be very surprising if the court ruled in favor of Wilson. I think it would open up Pandora's box in terms of how board management um, operates at all levels of government. And again, I think if Congress, you know, if Congress has rules that allow it to do the same, um, then so too can, you know, local government boards. I, I, I don't think I don't think he's going to win the 1983 suit. Those are really, really challenging to win. So I don't think he's going to win on the, on the immunity grounds. And I think he just went so over the line in terms of the private investigation um, and into not only just into the board, but also individually um, to another board member. I think that's really going to be sort of um, where the court just would draw a very stark line. Which there kind of the question as to why they took the case. When you have a court that's a little bit more to the right and you give a lot of deference to government and local government and local entities it's interesting that they even wanted to step in on this one well and they could want it to, to set a precedent you know they they could absolutely take this case to say that we you know want to want to make the case that you know and and to make the constitutional question clear that local boards have the right to censure their their um individual members for certain behaviors that go against established bylaws established guidelines of behavior um my guess would be that is why um and the other thing too it could just be another stab in the back to 1983 qualified immunity um which has received um stark criticism um, for um, its ability to actually produce the type of change that we actually think it should produce. Um, so that would that would be my guess. I mean, again, I could be completely wrong and I'll face on this, but my, my guess would be is there, it, this will probably, I would think be a very strong opinion written in defense of, of the HCC. 
Yeah, I would I would agree with you. I think um, your your analysis is dead on there. Um, it, does it does it change at all with the fact that some of the claims that uh, Wilson brought up actually became true? There was another twist in the case where uh, there was some fraud going on with the other board members, the other trustees. Uh, does that change at all? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, there are rules for how you deal with that, you know, and, um, you know, um, at the local level and at the state level. Um, so my guess would be that th these are situations where, um, again, the system can, the system self-corrects. And again, I don't think the court's going to say that he was, that Wilson was wrong in speaking out publicly. I don't think there's, I think right. it's the next step that he took that really crossed a line. And again, if you say that that's okay here, that then it becomes okay everywhere. Right. And how far do you want to allow individuals to step outside of a collective public whole in defense of something? Because what happens if they're really wrong? I mean, you have to think about that too. And um, I, I just think that, I, I think he's he stepped over a, a, a certain line um, that I don't think is going to be um, looked upon fair, looked upon in a favorable light. All right, well, let's move on to a new case, um, New York State Rifle versus Corlett. Uh, this is a second amendment case. Mm -hmm. uh, new York has some pretty strict gun laws. And one of those, um, one of those laws when a, a citizen wants to apply for a concealed carry license requires uh, the citizen to uh, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. So uh, Nash and, and Coke, I believe, um, decided to apply New York um, said that they did not meet that um, that standard. And so now they're suing, saying that uh, New York is violating their uh, Second Amendment right. So my first question is more of a procedural one, then we'll get into the substance of it. The, the court has not really made any decisions on uh, Second Amendment cases since uh, D.C. v. Heller in 2008, and then McDonald v. Chicago in 2011. Um, why are they taking the case now? Um, I think because it directly speaks to the issues in Heller and McDonald, and it's a way to broaden Second Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, so this could be categorized as an administrative law case in the sense that granting and denying licenses are one of the um, prominent um, responsibilities of local governments and that's an administrative function you have to you have to make a discretionary decision or judgment as to whether or not to grant or deny a license so i think one of the reasons the case that the court took this case um, deals with robert nash's argument um, against the new york um, state rifle and pistol association he argued 
um, that it was an issue of safety, that violence had dramatically increased in his neighborhood, that he felt that that was a reason that he needed the concealed um, weapon um, license um, to protect himself, to protect his family. That was in McDonald v. Chicago in um, 2010. That was a case written by um, Samuel Alito. That was the argument um, that, that was made, um, is that the city of Chicago began to significantly decrease licenses for handguns um, and local local citizens you know wanted wanted to be able to protect themselves um, and their families in neighborhoods where violence was significantly increasing um, and the court ruled emphatically that local governments cannot restrict firearm ownership to address any type of social and community challenges they may or may not be facing so I think that speaks directly to the challenge here um, is that basically New York here denied the license on the same grounds that Chicago denied the license and, and McDonald uh, for McDonald in that case. Um, and it was decided overwhelmingly that that was a violation of the Second Amendment. Um, so I think they're looking now um, at cases that at states that have very strict gun licensing um, registration and um, registration provisions to really sort of loosen them under the guise of the Second Amendment. So I was reading up on this case and um, some people were saying that previously Chief Justice Roberts was reluctant to take up Second Amendment cases because their opinion was that he just didn't care about them as much as <laughs> as uh, other cases. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't asked him. Uh, but now with Amy Coney Barrett uh, replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, is this the five um, kind of a, is this where you've got five of the Republican um, nominated justices uh, asserting some of their power maybe over the chief justice? Or well, I have that completely the, wrong. The chief justice is first among equals, mm -hmm. okay? So he has no more authority in terms of deciding cases than any one of his eight colleagues. Sure. Um, if you recall both Heller and Chicago, um, um, McDonald v. Chicago, both of those cases affirmed the Second Amendment. Um, and so even with, you know, Ginsburg on the court. Um, so I so I think um, there's been a majority on the court for some time um, for expanding Second Amendment rights. Um, and I'm not, I, th I think the reason, my guess would be that the reason at least for justices accepted the writ of, of cert on this case is they wanted to um, give a heavy hand to states that were not necessarily in compliance with the precedent that they felt that they established in both Heller and McDonald. And they want to ensure that, that citizens' Second Amendment, Second Amendment rights to um, purchase handguns, to potentially conceal those handguns, as a means to personal safety for themselves and their families, that that's a core constitutional protection under the Second Amendment and the Bill of Rights, and they're not they're not willing to compromise that um, in any circumstance whatsoever. So I think this is going to be a case where New York is going to lose pretty pretty severely. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they chose this one, and there were what ten other cases that were yeah. before the court, and they right. decided not to take any of those. So this one, they can very quickly assert we have precedent mm -hmm. not like what you're talking about with the abortion case hey yeah. we said this is the law and you are trying to violate it and we're reasserting right. 
So yeah, yeah I was there, there were that case is coming right up. So oral argument on that is um, November 3rd. That'll yeah, be, so that'll be that case is, is right is, is coming right down the in, in the early part of the term. So there had there had been some cases that that were appealed to the Supreme Court, but they didn't take right. the, the the understanding being that Roberts being kind of the swing justice at that point deciding that I mean who knows we are not in conference but you know this is the this is the thought process so uh now with Roberts potentially not being as as mm -hmm. much of a swing justice with Amy Coney Barrett's appointment I don't know I'm, I'm okay. just yeah and I will say and Scalia who wrote the Heller decision said that um that the dc handgun law is unconstitutional like you can't prohibit your citizens from having handguns okay but he he also made clear he made he made two key points mm -hmm. he says that this doesn't prohibit local government from regulating handguns that local government still can still regulate them that you can require local residents who own other types of firearms to register those firearms with with their town with their city and you can also um um, you, um, it does not restrict the rules and conditions and qualifications for commercial sale, and it doesn't, it places no restrictions on policy keeping firearms out of government buildings or schools or out of the hands of felons or those who are mentally ill. So neither one, neither Nash nor Coach in this case, um, they weren't requesting to bring them into public buildings or schools, okay, they're concealed guns. They aren't felons. They aren't mentally ill, as far as we know. Um, and this doesn't deal with the commercial sale of regulation. And so, you know, it doesn't it doesn't fit the caveats that Scalia, um, you know, um, made. You know, you know, you can't. You know, Heller was very clear. You can't. Pro you know, local governments cannot prohibit the sale of, of handguns, and they can't prohibit local. They can't prohibit. Um, um, residents from keeping those guns armed, you know, and, and, um, and I, th I think that, you know, that New York state here, you know, they didn't make a big enough case of why in the Heller decision, um, that it, that these, that this decision fit within those restrictions. And then again, going back to Nash, that was the exact argument in McDonald's you know, home safety, home security. I, I don't think there's any way that New York's going to win this case. I don't think it'll be unanimous, mm -hmm. but I don't think New York's going to win this case. Well, speaking of vague laws, um, I want to talk about Garland v. Gonzalez. So Garland v. Gonzalez, living in Texas, of course, immigration is always a really big issue. The idea here is whether an alien who's detained under um, Section 8, uh, or 8 U.S.C. Section 1231 is entitled by statute after six months of detention to a bond hearing in which the government must prove to an immigration judge that the alien is a flight risk or a danger to the community, and two, whether under this section the court below had jurisdiction to even grant class-wide injunctive relief. So what happened here is we have um, a gentleman who came to the United States um, as a minor. He became, let's see, when did he come? Came in 1992, became a lawful Permanent resident. So he came in at age six, became a lawful resident, and um, that was in 1992. And in 2001, Gonzalez pled guilty under Texas law to deadly conduct, knowingly discharging a firearm at or in the direction of one or more individuals or a habitant 
And so um, he is then rounded up under immigration and sent back to his home country in order to wait for um, a decision as to whether or not he will remain in El Salvador or whether or not he can return. So the question, of course, is as an alien who committed an aggravated felony, uh, which is a crime of violence, can he be sent back without hearing, without a hearing? But I think the specific question was that the, the federal law was just the crime of violence was too vague. And that they wanted to understand a little bit more about what crime of violence needs to be in order to be able to remove the alien or to not give the alien more time before a judge. Am I getting all that correctly? Yes. So the question is time and, and, and being detained in a detention center. Okay. Um, whether or not if you were held six months or longer, are you entitled to some type of hearing, okay, before an immigration judge to make your case? Um, so this, this is an interesting case because it brings up the question of due process and what processes do to people who are non-US citizens. Okay? I'm so glad you said that because that was my question. Because my <laughs> that is the biggest thing people are like, well, if you're an alien, you don't have due process because the constitution right. doesn't apply to you. Um, and so, you know, the court has has rules um, in the in the last several decades on this. If you can look at the Hamdi and the Hamdi cases, um, in which the Supreme Court looked at detainees held at Guantanamo Bay on the War on Terror, they weren't characterized as enemy combatants. Um, and so, what types of rights, you know, did they have? Um, and the court was, you know, the court was very clear that at some point you have to bring them before a judge and, and the government has to um, make a case as to why or why, why not you should be detained and a judge has to then make a decision based on that evidence. Um, I, I think we have to be very careful here in terms of how we criticize other countries that we don't become the very entities that we criticize the most. All right. Um, you know, is it is it American to hold people, whether they're citizens or non-citizens, indefinitely, you know, without access to some type of arbitrator, a, a judge, typically? Um, and, and I think the overwhelming answer to that is the way the, the federal district courts ruled, the way the Ninth Circuit ruled, is that at some point you have to, you know, allow um, habeas corpus to take it to take place and you have to allow um, those individuals to um, come before an immigration judge and that judge has to determine whether or not they should or should not be detained but do we want to be in the business of detaining people indefinitely mm -hmm. I mean that's a really important democratic governance question do well, we want to be in that business <clears throat> Yeah, but you know, this one, what I think was odd about this one is they sent him back. I mean, he's in El Salvador, right? Um, he's not being held in our detention facilities. But right, but there claims, are thousands that are. <laughs> right, but he claims that he still wants that time before the judge. Right. And so for the court to take this case, I'm, I'm interested, are they going to continue in that split where the more conservatives <laughs> are saying the legislation is such that if you are an, um, an undocumented, you break the law, we deport you the end? Or are, is the more liberal side going to win in the due process is necessary regardless of the, the act that's committed because crime of violence is so vague? Well, and I also think it, you know, his previous immigration status, you know, he's been in this country for most of his life. Now he could qualify as a DACA guy, right? He yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that raises, 
You know, all of those raised questions, and it speaks to a broader issue that I think is really important for public administration and governance in general, is that how terrible our immigration laws are, okay? Yeah. Yeah. They are they do not deal with the issue that they need to be dealing with. And this is just this is just one example amongst tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, where you know our review process and the way in which we handle um, the rights of people who are here, whether they're citizens or not, is is really needs some significant adjustment. Um, and again, you know, putting him back into El Salvador, you know, what if he doesn't speak Spanish? Right. You know, what if he has no community there? I mean, because his whole life has been here. I think, I think you, this, this raises so many questions beyond the case that, you know, where our immigration laws have really failed in terms of how we deal, especially with young people who grow up here, but then never get, you know, official status, legal status. Um, and, and what, you know, what opportunities do they have, you know, to, um, stay in this country, you know, you Is come here as a young child, really, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is interesting. Texas is always trying to strengthen the border, but not deal right. with what we already have. So I right. And, and I also think here, you know, you have the district courts, you know, which were multiple district courts reviewed this case. Um, they all ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, the Ninth Circuit affirmed so you've got two, two levels of, of jurisdiction here that are really adamant, you know, that the way this law was applied um, does not speak well um, to issues that we consider to be absolutely significant um, in terms of, of democratic governance. So, so I think that's something to also figure out. Now that doesn't stop the court from overturning both of those, those decisions, but I do think that's something that um, you know, that, that they'll have to address in some capacity as to, you know, if they rule against the, the district courts in the Ninth Circuit, they're going to have to tell you why. And, and I think that, that why is going to be interesting. Yeah, and that pushes the Biden administration to start acting a little differently as well, who's been a little lagging in mm -hmm. the immigration area. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so Thank much you. for it was a pleasure. I enjoyed taking the here. time to do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you are very fun. Oh, exciting to see if you. We get, we get really big, <laughs> if we get really big, which we won't, but if we get really big, you will always be able to say, I was the first. <laughs> I was the first. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope everything is going well. Um, Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Stephanie, you are amazing. And I could do this for about three hours, but of course um, that would, we probably lose a couple of people. So we're gonna, we're gonna cut it there. I'm so excited and I cannot wait for the term to begin. Yeah, and for those of you listening, if you really liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button so you'll know next month when we drop our next episode, which will deal with another hot topic in politics. Until then, thanks for getting political with us. And we'll see you next time. I have to, I honestly, I've found that I have to stay hydrated when I'm teaching. Otherwise, like I can really feel it. 
I mean, I guess I'm just getting too old, but you know, after three back to back to back classes, I feel like I'm about to die. 